Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. So, um, I want to start off the podcast today with a story. <clears throat> Excuse me. That hit the news on Friday and it was something I didn't anticipate uh, but it's something that I welcomed and is long long overdue so let me let me tell you the story at least I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs and again, this was August the 4th, 2023. Today, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit held that Mississippi's lifetime voting ban for people with disqualifying felony convictions who have completed their sentences is cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution. The decision overturned Section 241 of the Mississippi Constitution of 1890, which imposed a lifetime voting ban for citizens who have completed their sentences for certain felony convictions. The right to vote will be restored to tens of thousands of Mississippians following the decision. Now, on the surface, you know, whether you knew anything about Mississippi history or not, um, that's awesome. People who have served their time for whatever they were convicted of can now be eligible to vote. 
And unfortunately, they won't be able to vote on August the 8th when the primaries are taking place. But they will be eligible to vote in the November election. So the first Tuesday of November, 2023, thousands of Mississippians will have a chance to vote either for the first time or for the first time in a very long time in the Mississippi state elections. This is incredible news. And this is something, obviously, the Southern Poverty Law Center has been involved in litigation along with others to deal with this ban. And it's been years coming. So my personal experience of this has been as a legislator. Because the ban was there were like eight offenses that were determined to disenfranchise you if you were convicted of a crime, of any of those eight offenses. And really, the motivation behind it was they picked eight offenses that they either knew or had a feeling that black people would commit. Now you have your standards about murder and rape and all that, but bigamy is one of those offenses. So if you were married to more than one wife, then in the state of Mississippi, that was a felony offense and you lost your right to vote, right? So it was those kind of things. Now, when I was in the legislature, one of the things that we could do is we could get your right back as an individual. Now, we, we entertained, and I'll get into that in a minute, legislation that tried to give first-time offenders their rights back, you know, immediately. But the process was, was that I show up at a community meeting and I ask people, is everybody registered to vote, right? And this is just my example. There's many ways of how you can get this information. But let's say you're at a community meeting. And I've, I'm, I'm at a community meeting. I've asked people, are they registered to vote? And a few hands don't go up. So I ask, what is the reason why you're, you're not registered to vote or you haven't been voting? And then one of the persons may say, well, I went to jail. 
And then I would ask the question, what did you go to did in jail and prison synonymous in that lingo? But what did you go to prison for? He said, uh, I got caught with possession of marijuana with intent to sell. Then I would tell them, I have a voter registration form for you to fill out. Because drug offenses in 1890 were not really considered felonies. It wasn't even in the conversation. So people that had been convicted of drug offenses in the state of Mississippi, once they got out, they could vote. As a matter of fact, they could vote while they were in jail. They just had to vote absentee. Their rights were never taken away. So we're in prison. I, I need to be more professional and accurate. You were convicted and you were sent to prison. Or if you were in jail waiting to go to court, you could still vote, right? If you're waiting to have your day in court and you want to be able to vote, if you're registered to vote, you can. You have to do it absentee, right? But people with drug offenses could do the same thing, even if they were convicted. So that was one of the loopholes that we found out and organizations took advantage of that and literally were going to the prisons in the state of Mississippi and getting people to vote absentee. Not a lot of people took advantage of that, but some did, right? But now for everybody else, you know, another you know, another person would say, okay, just using the example, well, I got convicted on a burglary charge. Okay, so you did lose your right to vote. So I have this form that I need you to fill out. And basically what the form did was it asked for your name, when you were convicted, um, what was the charge, all the details, right? Where you currently live, all this stuff. So I would take that completed form to the attorney that was assigned to Judiciary B. And I would submit that to, to him at the time. I would submit it to him and he would draft legislation for that one individual. And so the information that's on the form has to be in the bill. So you have to list the person's name, where they live, and what they were convicted of. Right? All that had to be in the legislation. And it was basically saying, you know, being enacted whenever, you know, upon passage that this person would be allowed to register to vote. We would be allowed to be a qualified elector in the state of Mississippi, right? So every person that wanted to get their right to vote had to go through that process. So that means 
there were a lot of black legislators and some white legislators that were submitting these individual requests, right? And uh, we would have like hundreds of these. Out of those many, many applications, maybe 12 passed one house. And, and usually the way the process was working, although nothing was written in stone, the tradition had been that the House would deal with those bills first. Uh, if there were some senators that did it, they would introduce their bills too. But most of the time, it was House members that were actively getting these applications to create these pieces of legislation for these people to get their suffrage back. And suffrage is a fancy old word for voting rights, right? And so we vote on it. And out of all the hundreds that may have been considered, maybe 30 might make it out of Judiciary B Committee. And then out of that 30, 12 might make it as far as being voted on the floor, because it all depends if, you know, certain legislators, oh, well, they were convicted of, of manslaughter. And I don't know. And, you know, just, and we, we actually had legislators that no matter what it was, they would always vote no. Doesn't matter if, even if the overwhelming majority of the House said, okay, we're going to give this person another chance. And usually the legislator that introduced the bill would be allowed to speak on the bill. Now, sometimes the chairman, it all depends on what the calendar was looking like. The chairman would just go through all the stuff, but they would have the legislator introduce the bill like near the podium. So there were any questions that legislator could direct it. Cause if a legislator asked, you know, made that request, they engaged that individual at some point. And so, you know, once they did that, we voted on it. We had always had at least two or three no votes, regardless of how many legislators voted for it. Right. So out of 122 legislators, you could, guarantee that uh, three of them would vote no. It never was unanimous, but it didn't, fortunately, it didn't have to be unanimous. And then those 12 would go over to the Senate. Now, what the Senate would do, and the reason why they always wanted us to do it first, because the Senate had a different process. And I don't know how, why they had to hook up and the House didn't, but on the Senate side, they would have access to a database to see if that person had paid off their restitution. Because a lot of times when people were convicted of crimes, there's a financial penalty attached to it as well. And so during their period of parole, they have to pay off what we call restitution. They have to pay off a fine attached to what they were sentenced. 
So if a person, you know, completed their parole, hadn't been in trouble for like five years, which was another not written in stone criteria, but that was kind of a given that this person was off parole. They had, you know, hadn't had any, any new run-ins with the law. They weren't on trial for anything else. They were free and clear. And they had been on their best behavior for five years. Those usually are the ones that made it through until they got to the Senate. Then on the Senate side, they would look and see if these folks still owed some money. If they did owe some money, the Judiciary Committee on the Senate side would eliminate those people right away. And then, let's just say half. So then the Senate Judiciary Committee would bring out six names. And out of those six names, maybe four of them would get through. So out of hundreds of requests, four people may get their right to vote back. They may get their suffrage right back. Four per year. So needless to say, that was not a surefire way to get your voting rights back. It was a way, but it was very hit or miss and very subjective because we had one guy who was a former elected official. And I tell this story because it really shows how subjective this process was. This guy was charged with embezzlement. Now you say, ooh, Fleming, well, you know, he, he was a public official. He embezzled public funds, you know. Maybe he shouldn't be allowed to vote because if he allowed to vote, he could run again, right? All right, let me tell you what happened. So this guy was a county supervisor. In some states, y'all call those county officials commissioners, right? But in Mississippi, they call them supervisors. So this guy was a county supervisor. And he had... A, a, a unique old tractor, right? And one day he was working on his land and the tractor stopped running. He looked around, he tinkered with a little bit and realized he needed a new carburetor. Well, it just so happens that the county that he was a supervisor in had in its inventory a similar tractor. Now, it wasn't in use, but it was still on the county inventory. So he just decided, okay, let me just go down, find this tractor, take that carburetor off, put that on my tractor, and keep it pushing. Now, you're not supposed to do that because if it's still in the county books, it's still county inventory, therefore it could possibly still be used, right? And it's not his personal tractor or his personal spare tractor. It belongs to the government. So the charge and, and everything was warranted. Now, that carburetor was like $500. But that $500 carburetor cost him five years of his life, right? So he served his time. And he was an elderly guy. He wasn't like, 
you know, some 20, 30, 40 year old guy that, uh, you know, did it. He was, he was an older guy when he got convicted. So, you know, after he served his time, he was even older. And then he waited the five years, just like most people do. Cause he kind of knew the process. So he figured, you know, when it's time and everything's clear, he'll go ahead and apply. He wasn't intending on running ever again. He just wanted to be able to vote. Right. Cause if he actually made a commitment one time in his life to be an elected official, the voting process was important to him. And he was of an age where he remembered a time when black people, yes, this guy was black, that black people couldn't vote. And I don't know if he was one of the first black supervisors in his county, but wasn't that many before him if, if he wasn't the very first. So I sat on the Judiciary B Committee in the House for eight of the nine years that I served. So we voted his request, his bill, out of committee and put it on the floor, made it on the calendar. And, you know, we kind of had a debate about it, but, you know, we talked and, uh, you know, we kind of felt, you know, and the legislator who introduced it was vouching for him. So he was like, okay, you know, I mean, he's, he's an elderly gentleman. He's learned his lesson, yada, yada, yada. It's like he didn't, like, steal real money. He just made a bad judgment call, right, out of desperation, whatever. He needed that tractor fixed. He made that move. You would have thought the debate on the House floor, you would have thought that this guy had absconded with millions of county dollars, right, that he just raided the Treasury and was living this lavish life of luxury off of the county dime. Oh, they were just so, the comments were so disparaging and so mean and cruel, you know, and a lot of these people didn't even know who this guy was, right? And we did our best, you know, to say, hey, you know, let's give him a chance. I mean, members of the committee, especially the black ones, were speaking on behalf of giving this guy's voting rights back. Well, needless to say, it didn't pass. So, during my time in the legislature, his name never came up again. Now, it probably has passed. He's probably got his voting rights back. Hopefully, he's still alive. I don't even know. But that particular legislative session, when it came up, he didn't get it back. And so that was so hit or miss that a lot of people just, you know, if they understood or you explained to them the process, wasn't very hopeful. So a lot of people didn't do it. But, you know, one of the things that I did, because I personally can say that three people that I recommended to get their voting rights back got their voting rights back during my nine years. And other legislators 
have been able to do the same thing. And since I've been gone, other legislators have carried on the tradition, right? Especially black legislators, because, you know, we know that a lot of our folks were getting hemmed up on drug charges. And so we were letting them know, you haven't lost your right to vote. So we were getting them registered, and then the ones who actually committed what fell under the eight, right? Then, you know, we got them to fill out the form and all this stuff. I mean, I actually went to a church that had a rehab program, and, and you know, I and the church was in my district, and I talked with the pastor about the process. He said, well, you need to come to one of the rehab meetings and explain it. And maybe, you know, if they are interested in doing that, you know what I'm saying? You might help somebody out. And one of the people from that meeting was one of the three that I was able to get. Now, the side story on that was this was a woman, a white woman. And she had gone to jail for uh, forgery and um, larceny, stuff like that. Gone to prison, I should say. And, you know, but she was on drugs. And that's why she was in this program, because, you know, when she got out and had turned her life around and she felt like she was slipping. And so she uh, went to this black church <laughs> they had this rehab program and uh, started attending the meetings. And so that's how I got to meet her. So, you know, I had her fill out the forms and all that stuff because that meeting that I spoke was specifically to try to convince people to sign up. So when her bill came up on in the committee, the attorney for the committee was going to recommend no don't bring the don't don't bring this bill up but then he saw that i was the one who introduced it so he said mr chairman would you allow me to talk to representative Fleming about this particular bill, you know, and have to recognize somebody to table it until I talk to him about it. And then we can go from there. And the chairman was like, sure, no problem. He thought that was rather interesting, I should say. So the attorney pulled me to the side and he said, do you know this woman? And I said, no, I met her at a drug rehab program. And he said, oh, okay. So you did meet her? I said, yeah, I met her and talked to her. Uh, you know, I didn't get into any details about what she actually did, but, you know, she filled out the form and all that, and uh, she seems like she's turned her life around. You know, this rehab program's in the church, and yeah, so he said, well, the reason why I had a problem with it was because I was one of her victims. She had got a hold of my credit card and charged X amount of dollars on the card. And so I actually had to testify against this woman in court. 
I said, oh, wow. I'm sorry. And he said, no. He said, if you, if you talk to her, if you were the one, you're the one introducing this bill, if you talk to her and you can vouch for her, I won't, I won't have any objection to it because it's you. And I said, well, thank you. He said, I said, that means a lot. You know, I, I understand, you know, you don't want to give somebody to hurt you. He said, if you can vouch for her, I'm good. So we came back and, uh, the, uh, you know, he gave the chairman a sign. So we brought her bill up and, you know, I basically told the committee, you know, what I told the attorney and it passed and it got up on the floor and the chairman didn't even need me. He, he rode with it. He basically said, Representative Fleming personally talked to this woman because she lives in his district. And I mean, he sold it, right? Passed on the house, got to the Senate side, no restitution. Sailed through the Senate. She got her voting rights back. You know? And that was a good thing. But just that little nuance of the fact that it just so happened that one of her victims was the guy who could have killed her bill just by being the attorney for the committee, right? Now, to show that he was a man of honor, he was the one who had to draft the bill, so he went ahead and did it, right? Now, I don't know if he didn't make the correlation right away until afterwards or whatever, because he gets a lot of requests and he has to get all this stuff done during the session, but... Once he realized who it was, they very, they, they, that application could have disappeared. But he went ahead and, and processed it. But then he said what he had to say. And that's how precarious this whole process is. So just the fact now that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, three-judge panel, by the way, of the Fifth Circuit, looked at it and said, hey, that's, um, that's a violation of the Eighth Amendment. That's cruel and unusual punishment. Because if these people have done their time, it's time to get them back to be productive citizens. And one of the ways that people can be productive citizens if they have their voting rights restored. And that was the argument we were making, getting back to the legislation that we were, we were trying to get legislation passed. And one of the ways that we were trying to get it passed was during my time there, of course, they were pushing voter ID. And so our thing was, okay, when I say our thing, the black caucus, that if you want voter ID that bad, then the legislation has to also say that people who are first-time offenders who have served their time should be automatically restored their suffrage rights. 
And so we got that in the bill, passed it over to the Senate, but it didn't pass, nonetheless. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a long, torturous debate overall because a lot of us were not in favor of the voter ID at that time. And uh, so, you know, but eventually when the voter ID did pass in the state of Mississippi, that was a provision in there. So there were people already being allowed to vote that had served their time, but not everybody. But this ruling now says that those people can. Now, the question becomes, will that be challenged and taken to the full Fifth Circuit or taken to the Supreme Court? We don't know. But as of right now, if you have served time in the state of Mississippi and you want to be able to vote, I suggest you go to the courthouse first thing in the morning. If you are listening to this podcast or you know relatives that that fall in this category, you need to tell them, go to the courthouse and get registered to vote right now. Because they are now eligible. Because the Fifth Circuit has said that that provision in the 1890 Constitution was a violation of the U.S. Constitution. And there are a number of people, people that I were co-workers of mine that are now in the legislature were real ecstatic about that because we did work, you know, with the ACLU on that. And, you know, just other people that, you know, have been fighting this fight to try to make sure that because, you know, when you the whole purpose of that law was to take away the rights of black people, black men at that time in the 1890s because women still couldn't vote. But that was the whole purpose of that legislation. The whole purpose of that provision in the Constitution was to stop black votes. And so instead of, and during my time, instead of this attorney general that we had, I can call his name, Mike Moore, who was one of the longest serving attorney generals we had. His office did something really, really interesting. Instead of just saying, okay, it was eight, he took, it was somebody was asked for an attorney general's opinion. And in his opinion, he broke the eight down and it was like 22 offenses when he got through it, his opinion. Because, you know, he started breaking down like burglary, for example. He started saying, well, carjacking falls under burglary and this falls under that and blah, blah. So when it was all said and done, now it was 22 charges that could get your voting rights taken away. But he didn't he didn't put in drugs. Right. He just went by the eight that were in the Section 241 and then broke down other crimes that fell under one of those eight uh, initial crimes. So drug charges didn't get added, even under him. But, And that was a major defeat for us because we were like, dude, you just tripled the number of offenses. We were trying to, people were trying to figure out a way if you could lower it or lessen it and you tripled them. 
Nonetheless, today is a good day in the state of Mississippi because thousands of black men and women, thousands of white men and women, thousands of Latino men and women, Asian, Native, whoever, whoever has served time in the state of Mississippi and they still live there and they still want to participate in the process, they can as of right now. So if you want to register to vote in the state of Mississippi and you fell under that category where you were denied the access to do it, get to the courthouse right now and register to vote. So that was one good thing that happened in Mississippi on August the 4th. On the other side, I'm going to talk about another good thing that happened. So I'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So I just told you one good reason why Friday was a good day. This past Friday, August the 4th, 2023, was a good day in Mississippi. Now, let me tell you the other reason. And my good friend was one of the co-reporters on this story. And this is something that uh, was, again, another one that was overdue. And uh, you know, when you hear this kind of story as a person who's black or African-American, however you want to identify yourself. It really is, you know, gut-wrenching in a sense. Because uh, you know that on any given moment, on any given day, it could be you in America could be you. And that's a sad commentary and that's a sad way to look at the world, but that's where we are in America. And until we get to a point where we understand that we really have to treat people fairly and stop using race as an excuse for bad behavior or to justify bad behavior uh, until we get to that point it, it's always going to be a problem so anyway this was the other story six former Mississippi police officers including some calling themselves the goon squad quote unquote pleaded guilty 
Thursday to a racial assault on two black men that ended with an officer shooting one man in the mouth. The officers, who are all white, entered a house without a warrant on January 24th this year, assaulting the men with a sex toy and using stun guns and other objects to abuse them over a roughly 90-minute period court documents show after one victim was shot and wounded in a mock execution that went awry documents said the officers conspired to plant and tamper with evidence instead of providing medical aid the justice department launched the civil rights probe in february the mississippi attorney general's office announced thursday it had filed state charges against the six former officers including assault conspiracy and obstruction of justice. Um, I'm not going to read the officers' names. Uh, you can look that up. Um, and uh, I will tell you the victims. Uh, the two black men were named Michael Corey Jenkins and Eddie Terrell Parker. Uh, in June, they had filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against Rankin County seeking $400 million in damages. Now, I don't know if they're going to get $400 million, but um, they're probably going to get something now that these guys pled guilty. Right? So let me tell you how this went down. Officers initially went to the home in, in Braxton, Mississippi, which is in Rankin County, because a white neighbor, and when I say Rankin County, like literally like it's the last town in Rankin County before you get to Simpson County. It's technically the town where Piney Woods Country Life School is, right? The oldest black boarding school in America. And so there has been a black community in that part of Rankin County for generations. Officers went to the home in Braxton because a white neighbor complained black people were staying with a white woman who owned the house. So this is a Mississippi version of a Karen. Okay. The documents say Parker was a longtime friend of the homeowner and was helping care for her. Officers used racial slurs against the two men during the raid and quote-unquote warned them to stay out of Rankin County and go back to Jackson or their side of the Pearl River, areas with higher concentration of black residents, the documents say. One of the officers shoved a gun into Jenkins' mouth and fired. The bullet lacerated Jenkins' tongue and broke his jaw before exiting his neck. Before the raid, the officers agreed to enter without a warrant if they could avoid being spotted by the home security cameras. They also planned to use excessive force, but not to cause visible injuries to the men's faces so there would be no bad mug shots. The deputies threw eggs on the handcuffed victims and forced them to lie 
on their backs while pouring milk, alcohol, and chocolate syrup down their mouths. They forced the men to strip naked and shower to remove the evidence. The officers also repeatedly electrocuted the victims with stun guns to compare whether the sheriff's department or police department weapons were more powerful because this was a mixed group of people. These were sheriff deputies and regular police officers. One deputy offered to plant an unregistered firearm at the scene. Court documents identified two of the officers as suspects who assaulted the two men with the sex toy. <laughs> that, you know, and then the sheriff, of course, <clears throat> uh, in June, now this happened in January, in June, uh, the sheriff announced that the deputies had been fired or resigned. And the one police officer was revealed to be uh, fired as well. The sheriff basically said that the first time he had even heard about the details was when he read the unsealed court documents. The lawyer for the two men, Mr. Jenkins and Mr. Parker, said, Thanks to Justice Department. Uh, he's with, uh, his name is Malik Shabazz. He's with Black Lawyers for Justice. He said, these guilty pleas are historic for justice against rogue police torture in Rankin County and all of America. Today is truly historic for Mississippi and for civil and human rights in America. Now, you know, this goon squad thing right you know we we've we've heard this story before recently you know you had that special unit that was up there in memphis primarily black men that killed tyree nichols right beat him to death And, you know, there's been others. I'm here in Atlanta, and so obviously I came after. As a matter of fact, the correlation with Memphis and Atlanta is that the police chief in Memphis used to be the supervising officer over the Red Dogs here in Atlanta, right? Anyway, black woman. Anyway, so, you know, there have always been these groups of police officers who basically on the taxpayer dime become many Batman, many vigilantes, right? They, 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 they're like the, the science fiction kind of judge dread, you know what I'm saying? They, they're going to be the law and the executioner and all that stuff. Right. And in Mississippi, it hit home really because these were two black men and these were white guys. And, you know, we there was a sheriff. That's the reason why I highlighted the fact about Braxton being close to Simpson County because there was a sheriff that we called 
goon. His name was Lloyd Jones. Lloyd Jones was the commanding officer for the Mississippi Highway Patrol when in May of 1970, they were sent to break up an anti-war demonstration on the campus. And he issued the order to fire, supposedly because they had been fired upon. And some people say it may have been bottles breaking or whatever, but it wasn't gunfire. And they fired like in, a, in less than a minute, 300 rounds of ammunition. And if you go to the campus where the shooting took place, you can see they kept panels on one of the dormitories where you can still see the bullet holes that went through. Uh, and I remember as somebody young, even before I attended Jackson State, this visual picture that was in the Ebony Black History Encyclopedia of Walter Mondale and Birch By, who were part of the Senate committee to investigate the shooting, not only at Jackson State, but at Kent State the same year, literally like weeks apart. They had created a special commission to deal with these instances of police violence against demonstrators. And that the image is the windows were still shattered from the bullets and and you see By and Mondale looking out of that shattered window at the damage that was caused, right? And two people died. One was a senior at Jackson State, um, Philip Gibbs. And one was a senior at the neighboring high school, Jim Hill, the, the young man's name was James Green. And they and Green was on his way home from school when he just happened, unfortunately, to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Several people were wounded, including the lady who currently serves as a chancery clerk in Hines County now. Uh, and those people who were supposed to graduate that week from Jackson State, they never got their diplomas. That's how dramatic they basically shut down the campus right then. School was over with, right? And, you know, so those folks for years never got their diplomas. They were recognized as graduates of Jackson State, but they didn't have a graduation ceremony. They didn't get diploma, none of that, you know? And so that was kind of their, you know, badge of honor, I guess, or whatever, however you want to look at it that they never got their diplomas because of the atrocity that happened. And the guy who issued the order was a guy named Lloyd Jones, who we nicknamed Goon Jones, right? And eventually karma caught up with him and he got killed by an inmate that he decided he was going to abuse that was at his property. Right, he got into a fight with the guy and had a heart attack and died. And one of the things I'm kind of proud of as a member of the legislature during that time, because I also served on the transportation committee for eight years, and somebody had the audacity to bring up a bill to name part of the highway 
think it was Highway 49, it went through Simpson County after Jones, after he died. And I basically told the committee the story that I just told you. And needless to say, that road didn't get named after him. Because he had been the sheriff for a long time. And that was kind of tradition, former Highway Patrol people, when they left the Highway Patrol, a lot of them ran for sheriff. And, you know, they would win because, oh, you know, he was a Highway Patrolman. You know. So the proximity of where all this took place just brings all that back to me. And of course, you know, we've on a national level, we've been dealing with, uh, well, I say dealing with, uh, finally commemorating uh, Emmett Till. And, uh, you know, something really hit me I didn't really think about, you know, because all, you know, the image and everything, I've, you know, growing up and, and understanding the story, because Emmett was from Chicago, uh, was, you know, he was a 13-year-old boy, and, you know, it was 1955, and, uh, you know, it's just the, the brutality and the thing, and then, the woman who I think it was related to a guy who eventually became governor of the state, uh, she finally she finally passed away. And there was a chance before she died for her to be indicted for her role in the murder of Emmett Till and the district attorney at, in that area who is black decided not to because basically realized she was going to die. And she would probably die before went to trial, but if that happened, she would have died indicted instead of free. So a lot of people are not happy with him. And it's a question, if he has opposition, if he's going to get reelected or not, he, he probably will, but yeah, that was an opportunity we missed. She should have, she should have at least been indicted before she died because she lied. And her lie led to a 13-year-old being killed. But the thing that kind of hit home with me about it was somebody was talking about, you know, one of their parents and how the Emmett Till murder hit them. And my dad, was only one year older than Emmett Till when that happened. And it never, and my mom was only two years older. So, you know, Emmett was 13, my dad was 14, and my mom was 15 when that happened. So, you know, that just, that, that, you start breaking it down like that, it's like, oh my God. And that, that could have very easily been my dad because my dad would go down to Mississippi during the summers. It was like he was born in Mississippi, but his family left when he was two and he was growing up in Southern Illinois in a town called Centralia. 
But every summer they would go down to, you know, work on family farm in Mississippi, in Mount Bayou, to be exact. So, you know, and he would tell me stories about as soon as they crossed the line, if there happened to be a trooper there and see a car full of black kids, you know, young black guys, they would like, would stop them and say, hey, what you doing here? You know, telling me we're coming down, you know, for the summer to, you know, work with, with you know, on, my, on our relative's farm and stuff, you know. Just coming down here to do some summer work, you know, whatever. And, you know, the officer would basically say, we well, all behave and yada, 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 and let them on their way. Because as long as they weren't with SNCC, <laughs> or, you know, with SNCC wasn't even around them, but if they weren't down there to, you know, start any trouble, you know, because they had out-of-state license plates, of course, then, you know, they were okay. But it really hit home, you know, it just, it even made it more apparent why they would do it, because Emmett was a 13-year-old boy coming from Chicago to visit his relatives and work on the farm and get to know his family in Mississippi. And all this transpired, and, and he ended up dead. So, you know, I'm just thinking that could have been my dad, man. That could have been my dad. You know, as a matter of fact, I wouldn't be here if it was my dad because he would have died at 14. You understand where I'm going with that? I mean, it just so, you know, anytime there's a situation, whether it's in Mississippi or anywhere in this country. where we see how this racism has this incredibly devastating impact on black people. It just, it just hits a certain way. And so, you know, these guys at the beginning of this year went for 90 minutes of being terrorized by these six white guys. And all they were trying to do was take care of this white woman that they knew. They knew that she needed some help cooking and cleaning the house and, you know, just kind of looking out for her, being good neighbors. And some white woman says, hey, there's some black people at the house. Y'all need to come check that out. Not... I think somebody has broken into the house as the case with Professor Gates up there at Harvard. None of that. There are some black people at this white woman's house. Y'all need to come check this out. And these six white guys, because one of them wasn't even on duty. So on his off day, or he was off his shift anyway, he joins the other five who are on duty and respond to the call. And no warrants, nothing. They just go in and terrorize these two black men for 90 minutes. And we are very fortunate that the one brother who got shot lived. Which means that this guy 
had a gun in his mouth. And it's like, talk about the favor of God. If you don't believe in God, that's fine. But we do, those of us who do, we understand that's favor. A man had a gun point blank in his mouth. And the worst he got out of it was a lacerated tongue and a broken jaw. It didn't even go straight. Because it could have killed him. It could have at least, worst, worst case, it paralyzed him. Right, but he was fortunate that the gun went off. I don't think he was really trying to shoot the guy, but the gun went off and he lacerated his tongue and broke his jaw. But at that point, that should have been like, we got we we gotta we gotta wrap this up and get them to the station and all this stuff. But they were sitting around trying to figure out how to get their lie together. While this guy needed medical attention. And this was apparently after they had done all this stuff and the chocolate and all this alcohol, pouring it on them, milk making them get naked and shower. And these guys were handcuffed the whole time. So they basically took their clothes off of them and made them do all this crap to, I guess, send a message that these black folks were not wanted in this portion of Braxton where black people have been in Braxton for a long time, long time, right? I mean, when we were sitting up strategizing politically, it was like Rankin County was is primarily white, but we were trying to find sections where we could get black voters to vote for Democratic candidates, and Braxton was one of those towns. Same with Star. All that's like on 49, if you're going south, like you're going toward Hattiesburg or the Gulf Coast. You're going to pass by these towns that had significant black population in Rankin County. It's kind of the southeast corner of the county, right? Going into Simpson. But this white woman obviously is of an age where she never got over the fact that black folks and white folks could intermingle. She calls the police. And it seems to me that somehow, some way, she needs to be in the lawsuit, right? And I know we, we live in this era now, ever since 9-11, where it's like, see something, say something, which is why these Karens have popped up and now it's like black folks having barbecues or fishing at a pond in their gated community that they live in or, you know, whatever, warrants police intervention, kids swimming in the pool, anything, right? Folks getting cussed out at, and spit upon at grocery stores and CVSs and 
and and this usually is the result that these white folks call primarily these white women call the police on these black folks and the police don't handle the situation well it always seems like the guys who have implicit racial bias the guys that have an agenda the guys that ain't wrapped too tight always are the ones that respond to these racially motivated calls you know I don't know if they're the ones that say hey we got it you know to the dispatcher I don't know how that works but they always seem to be the ones and at some point in time at some point in time, you know, it doesn't matter how fancy the facility is that you train them in. It doesn't matter how many reviews and audits you pass and awards you get for the, the curriculum in your program. If you don't deal with people, if you don't hire people that are, are sane enough to do the job professionally, these are the outcomes that you're going to continue to forget to get. And it's like, I understand there's a shortage. There's a demand for police officers. And there are people that get through the cracks, especially if they look white. But the reality is, is that of all the professions, you give these people and I know the history about police in America. It's totally different than what Brother Poole did in London. I, I get all that, right? But we're in the 21st century. And in the 21st century, we got to start looking at things differently than we did in the 20th century, the 19th century, the 18th century. In this country. And the way that you do that is that you've got to screen out these folks that ain't there. The Philadelphia Police Department literally had to get rid of damn near half of their staff because these folks were subscribing to right-wing, white nationalist, white supremacist websites. They had to do it. Did it cause a problem? Yeah, you lose all that manpower. That's a major problem in a major city. But in order to maintain the integrity of that police department, to in order to raise the standard, you had to let them go. And that's a tough choice to make. But hey, you know, I make fun. There's one police department in America where it's like you can't have any tattoos you you if you admit that you've drunk alcohol you're disqualified if you admit that you have smoked marijuana anytime in your life you're disqualified i mean no tattoos not you know in strategic locations where uniform covered at none whatsoever right and we were like where are you going to find these people you're definitely not going to get any former marines to apply <laughs> cuz you know it's kind of a rite of passage for a lot of them to get a tattoo somewhere. But that's maybe, but you know, I don't know these, they, you know, they, 
might be a unique form of fascism or Nazism or whatever down there. I don't know. It's some police department in Florida, by the way, right? But it's like they they don't do any they you, you can't have any of that stuff. And maybe, you know, it's hard for them to find people, but that's what the standard they set. And I think every police department in America, especially in Mississippi, needs to have a higher standard. And I get it, Mississippi only has three million folks. I get it. There are cities in America that are bigger, they have more people than the state of Mississippi. I get it. You know. But when you send those men and women to Malota to get certified in the law enforcement, that's the Mississippi Law Officers Training Academy, right? When you send them there, then what should come out is a professional that can handle situations that would take a call from a concerned person and instead of planning to inflict pain on black people for 90 minutes, maybe have a 90-second talk with the individuals and, and ask what's going on. Because the first clue would have been if I knocked on the door and the black guys answered the door, right? Might have been my first clue that maybe they're not doing anything wrong if they answered the door. You said police, they opened the door and let you in. With even without a warrant. That's a sign that maybe they're not doing anything wrong. Let's assess the situation. Let's see what's going on. Once you hear their side of the story, you check the woman to see if she's okay. If she cooperates what they're saying. All right, guys. Back to the cars. Let's go. Head back to the station. Whatever we're going to do. Let's go get some meat. And keep it pushing. But you don't take that opportunity if you're in your right mind to terrorize any human being, let alone two black men, for 90 minutes. I'm glad that they decided to go ahead and plead out and not put those young men through a trial that the press would probably be asking to cover and all that stuff. You know, because some of them got some federal charges they got to answer to. I think some of them have already pled guilty on those too. But... Yeah. You know, overall, this has been a good, that August the 4th was a good day in Mississippi. With those officers pleading guilty, with the Fifth Circuit appeals basically deeming the restriction, the lifetime ban on voting uh, unconstitutional. But it's also a reminder because August the 8th, and by the time this airs, it'll be a day before the election. 
people in Mississippi have to vote. You have to choose who their nominees are going to be for particular offices. In some cases, like in the district I used to represent, the person who wins that, if they if there's somebody that gets 50 plus one on August the 8th, they're the new state representative for District 72. There are four people running. Three of them are children of elected officials or former elected officials. And so it's going to be contested. The one other person is running, their family has been in that district for a long time. So there's four people who are inextricably tied to that district. So good luck. <laughs> Voters of District 72 in picking the best person for that job. I think you'll be okay, whoever wins, right? Because I know at least three of them for sure. <sighs> literally saw them grow up right three of them um but nonetheless seriously this election just like every election is important because these are the people that will be making the decisions for the state of mississippi for the next four years and if there's any place that needs to get some folks to shake it up in a progressive way and make sure that people's rights are protected is Mississippi. So August the 4th, 2023 will go down as a good day, but I really would like to see 2023 be a good year for Mississippi. Until next time.